have seen the TV show Undercover Boss. A CEO disguises himself as a regular employee of the company, and he interacts with his subordinates. At the end of the show, the employees are invited to a meeting where the boss's true identity gets revealed. Well, the Gospels are the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss. Jesus is God in the flesh, or the boss incognito. Nothing about his appearance tips us off to his true identity until we get to Mark chapter 9. For tonight is the episode where the boss's identity gets revealed. On a mountaintop, Jesus' humanity was peeled back and his divine nature radiated so that three select disciples could see and could behold his glory. Well, chapter 9 begins. And he said to them, his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now Jesus isn't promising them immortality. He's just referring to what's about to happen next. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. Now remember, Jesus and his men had been in the Golan Heights. They'd been near the town of Caesarea Philippi. A little north of them was Mount Hermon, a snow-capped mountain peak, 9,200 feet above sea level. Today, the modern Israelis have actually built a ski resort on the peak. This was probably the high mountain to which Jesus took Peter, James, and John, Mount Hermon. And what they witnessed there was far more thrilling than even snowboarding down the Black Diamond. In fact, Peter talked about this experience for the rest of his life. As an old man in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he recalled how they were witnesses of his majesty. What Peter sees here changes his life forever. Well, Mark tells us, And Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Not even Clorox concentrate can bleach out Jesus' robe as bright and as white. This Greek word translated transfigured is the term from which we get the English word metamorphosis, which speaks of an abrupt, a dramatic change. We use it to describe the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. For three decades, the deity of Jesus was under the cover of his humanity. Now, the boss gets revealed. And this was a preparatory moment for his disciples. They're going to need this reference point in the days ahead. They're about to see Jesus bloodied and beaten and bruised. But before they see the glory, Jesus wants them to see his glory. The light they see radiate from Jesus on this mountaintop is going to help them when they're in the shadows on another mountain called Calvary. And we also need to see this story. We need to keep this story in our hearts. For when folks mock our convictions and snicker at our faith, let's return to this mountain and let's recall his glory. There'll be crosses in our lives that we'll be called on to suffer. And in those shadowy moments, that's when we need to recall the glory of Jesus on the mountaintop. For one day, we too will share in that glory if we remain faithful here and now. But the glory of Jesus was not all Peter, James, and John saw on the high mountain. Verse 4. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses stood for the law, Elijah the prophets. And their conversation with Jesus affirmed that the three disciples here, it affirmed to them that Jesus was greater than both the law and the prophets. Actually, Luke tells us that they talked about the cross. The transfiguration confirmed Jesus' identity, but this conversation revealed his destiny, that he was headed to the cross. Jesus hoped his disciples would have eavesdropped. Apparently, they didn't. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wants to set up three pup tents right there on the mountaintop. 
It's interesting, the Feast of Tabernacles was right around the corner. And perhaps Peter was suggesting that they all just stay on the mountaintop and celebrate the feast together. And this is often the reaction we have when God meets us in a special way. In a church service or perhaps on a retreat. We want to stay and bask in the glory. We want to camp out on the mountaintop rather than tackle the valley. You know, we really shouldn't spend much time speculating on what Peter was thinking here because Mark tells us he wasn't thinking. Notice what he says. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Here's another example of Peter's tendency to open mouth, insert foot. You know, it's been said, some people have something to say, other people have to say something. Peter was in the latter group. It's wisdom to realize that not every situation calls for your commentary. I've heard it put, often the best way to save face is to keep its lower half shut. We're told, and a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Wow, the father's message here was zip your lips and listen to Jesus. Good advice for us today. Verse 8, suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. You see, despite his clear teaching, the disciples had failed to grasp Jesus' destiny his death, and his resurrection. And this will become the main priority for Jesus over this last few months of his ministry. They've gotten his identity. He's Messiah. But now he's going to show them his destiny. Verse 11. And they asked Jesus, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Now Malachi chapter 4 had predicted that Elijah would return to earth prior to the coming of Messiah in his glory. Well, then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. Now, Jesus doesn't contradict Malachi. Elijah will come prior to his second coming, to Messiah's second coming. I believe he'll be one of the two witnesses that we read about in Revelation 11. But at his first coming, John the Baptist had served as the forerunner, as the Elijah. Here, Jesus, he gets their minds off Elijah, and he refocuses them on his coming trials. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. John the Baptist was not the Elijah. He's yet to come. But Jesus said John came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And sadly, the Jews rejected John just as they'll later reject and persecute Jesus. Well, verse 14, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. They come down from the mountaintop now, and guess what they encounter? And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever he seizes him, he throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. A classic case of demon possession. And notice the symptoms of being seized by a demon. Where it's interesting, some of these same things show up in our young people today. First, he's thrown down. When you notice an overnight decline academically or socially in a child, beware. Second, frothing like a rabid dog. When you see an inexplicable anger surface in someone. Third, grinding the teeth. When there's a debilitating angst and frustration about everything, beware. Fourth, a rigidity. Or a complete unresponsiveness to parents and to authority. See, Satan is still alive and well. And his motives haven't changed. He still wants to destroy our young. 
Today, from pop music to movies to video games, the occult permeates today's culture. Let's beware. God gives us the mountaintops to prepare us for the valley. The last sentence of verse 18 is so tragic. The boy's father says to Jesus, And so I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, but they could not. In verse 19, Jesus responds, He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Notice in this story, the experts, the scribes dispute. The parent despairs and the disciples are defeated. But there's still hope for this boy. For Jesus delivers. The boy's hope is summed up in four words here. Jesus says, bring him to me. And this is our hope, guys. Bring them to Jesus. Hey, whenever I talk to people these days, I'm quick to ask them if they want to pray. And right then and there, I bring them to Jesus. Bring people to Jesus. That's all he's asking us to do. Jesus is the answer, not us. Jesus is greater than Satan. We need to bring people to Jesus. And then they brought him to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And so Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Imagine this boy had lived his whole life under the sway of the devil. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. You remember Satan's goal is to steal and kill and destroy. And that's what he had tried to do to this boy. Imagine this father's desperation. He says, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The man asks, if you can do anything. And Jesus replies, I can do all things. The solution here doesn't hinge on Jesus' ability. Jesus is always able. The only issue is our faith. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What an honest admission. How many times have we prayed that? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He had faith. But it was a wimpy, skimpy kind of faith. Oh my. Wasn't much to it. He cries out to Jesus to bolster his weak faith. But hey, at least he used what faith he had. He brought his boy to Jesus, and he cried out for help. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out like he was trying to get one final shot. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. Just fell lifeless. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Had a new life. He'd been freed from the demon by Jesus. Obviously, it wasn't the strength of the man's faith or his father's faith that performed this miracle. He had a weak faith. It was the object of his faith. Jesus delivered this boy despite the fragile faith. See, it's not our faith, but it's God that moves the mountains. What we need is faith enough to move the hand of God. Verse 28. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. See, the disciples had cast out demons in previous cases, and they were dumbfounded that this time they had failed. But apparently, not all demons are equally determined. There are dogged demons who see through a facade of faith, and they hang on. And in their case, prayer and fasting become the keys. We need to remember, life is a battleground, not a playground. Particularly, our kids have targets on their backs. Thus, parents in particular should be armed with spiritual weapons. 
We can do much damage to the devil through prayer and fasting. Verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. He's been teaching them this. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Again, they just didn't get it. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now this would have been an embarrassing admission if they had been honest. While Jesus is speaking of the cross, they're debating about who's going to be boss. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't get angry with these men, nor does he rebuke their ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great for God as long as you know how to obtain that greatness. See, greatness in God's kingdom isn't climbing up the ladder, rather it's climbing down. In God's kingdom, downward mobility is what matters. It's not standing, but stooping. It's not stardom, but service. I read of a Cincinnati pastor who wanted to serve the Lord outside the four walls of his church. And so he loaded his cars up, cars, the trunk of his car up with supplies, and he went to very, various businesses in town and offered to clean their restrooms. Well, at one truck stop, the manager warned him. He said, Pastor, I've got 20 toilets. The pastor said, well, you know, I'll clean a few of them. The gruff manager replied, no, you'll clean all 20 or you'll get out of my store. Well, the pastor thought about it for a moment and he he agreed to do them all. That's when the manager said to him, Pastor, I really only have two toilets, but I wanted to see what kind of Christian you are. And that's the test, isn't it? It's not how many songs we sing or how many sermons we preach or how many meetings we attend. It's whether we're willing to clean a toilet. In God's kingdom, we descend into greatness. Then Jesus took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In the Roman world, children had zero rights. They were considered the property of their parents. Here Jesus identifies with the last and the least and the lowest of society. He ministers from the bottom of the pecking order. This is why when you take the lowest place, you walk right into Jesus. He's among the humble, not the haughty. A woman was shopping at a store on a cold winter's day. She exited the store and she noticed a little boy. He was gazing through the window. She asked him why he was out in the cold. He said, I'm asking God for a new pair of shoes. Well, immediately this woman, she whisked the boy back into the store, bought him new shoes and socks. He was just about to leave when he asked her, Ma'am, are you God's wife? We are never closer to God or being the bride of Christ than when we point a little child to Jesus. Verse 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. You know, it's amazing how narrow and sectarian Christians can get. As if our group were the only legitimate believers around. But Jesus says in verse 40, For he who is not against us is on our side. We should remember that. He who's not against us is on our side. Now understand, Jesus isn't downplaying legitimate differences in Christian doctrine. There are reasons why various groups exist with different distinctives. But we always need to understand that the body of Christ is bigger than any single group or church or denomination of churches. 
What God is doing in our community is bigger than just what he's doing here through Calvary Chapel. We should never forget that. Christians need to be magnanimous. We need to take the attitude until proven otherwise. He who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now Jesus is getting a little rough here. He says, stumble or mislead a new believer, one of these little children. And it would be better for you if the Jewish mafia put you in a concrete wet suit and threw you into the lake. Pretty tough words. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is such a thing as hell, guys. It's a real place. It's considered to be eternal fire. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is not a place where you want to go. And Jesus' instructions here are to keep us out of hell. Here he describes for us true repentance. Sadly, over the years, some Christians have taken these words literally. They've amputated appendages thinking that that would give them victory over sin. But if you can sin with your right hand, don't you think you can sin with your left one too? Matter of fact, you can chop off both hands. You can sin with your nubs if sin's in your heart. Trust me, if you can lust with one eye, You can just as well lust with the other one. A physical amputation can't affect an inward appetite. Jesus isn't speaking literally here. He's using a literary device known as hyperbole, or truth by exaggeration. Think of a soldier wounded in combat. The only way that soldier would agree to an amputation is if his choice was loss of life or loss of limb. That's the only time he would agree to an amputation, loss of life or loss of limb. And sometimes the same choice has to be made in the war with sin. In other words, either you lose something precious to you or you lose your own soul. This is a choice we sometimes have to make. In other words, if maintaining your integrity in that situation means losing your job, so be it. Lose your job and trust God for another. If the television or the internet is your downfall, then you need to lock it away. Put it under lock and key and throw away the key or give it to your wife. If you can't handle your hormones, then stop dating for a while. In other words, radical repentance does whatever it takes. Jesus is telling us that we have got to treat sin by getting to the root of the issue. You pull it up, you pull up a weed by the root, don't you? This is how we have to treat sin. Once an old man, he stood in the church and he offered the same prayer every single Sunday. He said, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Oh, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. One week, a young fellow, he got tired of the old man's prayer and he prayed, Lord, forget about the cobwebs, just kill the spider. <laughs> Jesus is saying here, you've got to get at the root of the sin. In verse 49, Jesus says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Salt is a preservative, and here Jesus encourages us to endure. If you're an elderly person tonight, be an old salt. 
If you're a younger person, be a saltine. But let's all be salty saints. Well, chapter 10 begins. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. It's interesting, Jesus never got tired of feeding God's word to hungry hearts. Hope the same can be said for me. Verse 2. Now the Pharisees came and they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Now the Pharisees, they want to draw Jesus into a doctrinal debate that was raging at the time. As in our day to day, the subject of divorce and remarriage were hot button issues. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And here Jesus refers to Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses set out procedures for obtaining a divorce. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now you see, the Jews had misinterpreted Moses' intent. He did lay out procedures for divorce, but he did so to discourage it, not to encourage it. You see, prior to the Mosaic law, all a man had to do to end his marriage was to renounce his wife and send her away. The law protected the wife, this law now. You know, in other words, he could just dispense of his wife at his own volition. This law, though, in Deuteronomy 24, these procedures that Moses set up, now protected the wife and tried to prevent the divorce. The law did so in three ways. First, by requiring a formal certificate. The man couldn't just have a bad day and send his wife off. He, he, had, to get, he had to go to the elders of the community, he had to explain himself, he had to get a formal certificate. Second, there was a cooling off period to get the certificate. Made him kind of calm down and think it through. And then third, the law stipulated if the divorce was granted, it had to be permanent. He couldn't change his mind later. There was no remarriage. Again, all this was to discourage divorce, not encourage it. Malachi 2 verse 10 tells us, The, law, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. His stipulations the stipulations in the law were intended to prevent divorce, not promote divorce. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Deuteronomy 24 was an example of divine damage control. The Greek word translated hardness is sclerosis, or scleros, scleros, that's what it is, scleros from which we get our word sclerosis. What is that? That's the hardening of the arteries. See, people blame divorce today for a host of reasons. But Jesus says that divorce would not exist if it weren't for the hardness of your hearts. In fact, you can trace the cause of any divorce back to its source, and you'll find a hard heart. The couple stopped forgiving. They stopped sacrificing. They stopped loving each other. Hearts can get so hard that couples who once loved each other now want to murder each other. It can happen. And God here makes a concession. Rather than cold-blooded killing, he tolerates divorce. This was an accommodation, though, to man's hardness. It was never his will. In verse 6, Jesus takes us all the way back to God's original design for humanity. But from the beginning of the creation, God said, God made them male and female. God made them male and female. God made mankind in his image. But that image consisted of male and female. Both masculinity and femininity reflect God's nature. The divine nature is a blend of the woman's sensitivities and the man's strengths. This is why androgynous, gender-neutral thinking is such an affront to God. 
Hey, women should look and think and act like women. And men should look and think and act like men. Gender differences are not the result of tradition's brainwashing or of a sexist culture's socialization or a fluke of evolution. No, God made them male and female. And God's plan was for the man to leave his parents and be married to his wife. Verse 7. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's one man, one woman in a bond and in a relation, a lifetime relationship, this was God's plan. Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 2, and he reminds us how God has ordered marriage. Notice the four steps here. Step one, leave. Step two, cleave. Step three, weave. Step four, conceive. That's how you should conduct your marriage. You cut ties with your parents, your former allegiances. You leave. Then you tie a knot of commitment with your spouse, and you cleave. Then you learn to live out a practical, workable harmony and unity. You weave your lives together, and then you affirm it all with intimacy and fruitfulness. You conceive. In verse 10, the discussion on marriage continues. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now here's a heavy verse. Let's understand divorce and remarriage and not make it either harder or easier than God intended. Let's make sure we understand it. For there are divorcees who live their lives in condemnation. They assume that God considers their second marriage adultery. And it really keeps them from making the best of what they've got now. Jesus isn't saying a remarried couple stays in an adulterous state. He is simply saying that they committed an adulterous act. In other words, if you divorce your spouse on unbiblical grounds, you remember there are biblical grounds for divorce, adultery, abandonment, we can talk about those things later. But if you divorce your spouse on an unbiblical basis and remarry someone else, God considers that action adultery. You've broken your marriage vow without God's sanction. In verse 9, Jesus tells us, and I quote it every time I officiate a wedding, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. But adultery is not the unpardonable sin. God forgives unbiblical divorces. Even a marriage born in sinful circumstances isn't irredeemable. And it shouldn't remain under the stigma of adultery. For if both parties confess their sin and learn from their mistakes and make a permanent commitment to their new marriage, I believe that God will bless that marriage and even use it for his glory. Here's a tremendous truth. God hates divorce, but God loves divorcees. I believe that God is willing to bless you with a brand new start if you supply him first with a repentant heart. Now verse 13 tells us, Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked those who brought them. His disciples thought that Jesus was too big. He was too busy to be bothered with these little snotty-nosed kids running around. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. The original says he was grieved greatly. One paraphrase puts it, Jesus was irate and let them know it. Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Jesus loved children 
He loved playing with them and spending time with them. Pastor Gordon McDonald said he doubted a man's Christianity if children weren't found playing around his front door. Children always felt comfortable around Jesus. He was never too busy to make time with children. But this doesn't mean that Jesus wants your kids in the sanctuary on Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. (laughs) Folks use that verse all the time to justify bringing their kids into the adult service. But here's the issue in this verse. The disciples were keeping the kids away from Jesus. And listen, the surest way to keep your kids away from Jesus is to bore them with church. Is to make them endure a service that's geared for adults. An adult service is the last place Jesus wants your kids. I'm sure he prefers to communicate with them on their level in ways that they understand. Jesus will meet your kids. He wants to meet your kids on Sunday morning, but he wants to do it in the Sunday school, not in the sanctuary. Of course, one reason that Jesus loved little children was the attitude he saw in them. He tells us in verse 14, For of such is the kingdom of God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus saw in the nature of a child the attributes needed to embrace and be part of God's kingdom. If we brought Cheryl up here to talk to us about the kindergartners in her class, she she would tell us what, what they are like. They're honest, honest to a fault. They've yet to learn the arts of hypocrisy and duplicity. They're dependent. They lean on their parents and the adults around them. Children are trusting. They take you at your word. Make sure you honor your promises. Children are open, they're receptive to the truth, and they're eager to learn. And we enter God's kingdom by having these kinds of childlike qualities, honesty, independence, and trust, and openness. Verse 16, and he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus performed his own baby dedication here. He blessed the little children. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now in verse 22, Mark mentions this man was rich. Matthew tells us he was young. Luke says he was a ruler, probably of the synagogue. Put it all together, and he was the rich, young ruler. He had wealth, he had health, he had power, but something was missing deep inside. He'd be the first to let you know. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now realize, Jesus isn't denying his deity. Instead, he's saying, God is the only one who is truly good. Thus, when you call me good teacher, are you agreeing that I'm God? That's what he's asking. And we're going to discover that Jesus struck the right chord with this guy. For Jesus was not the man's God, nor did he want him to be. This man worshipped his money, his possessions, his wealth. Jesus says to him, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Notice Jesus only lists the second tablet of the law. The commandments that deal with our fellow man. He doesn't mention the first commandments that deal with our worship of him, of God. That was the issue in the man's life. He'd done all the other things with his fellow man, but he wasn't worshiping God the way he should. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. No problem loving his brother, but gold was his God. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I like that. Jesus is about to speak a really hard word to this man. It's going to be a tough pill to swallow. He wants him to know that he's loved ahead of time. And then Jesus said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. What Jesus wanted from this man was his undisputed, unrivaled devotion. If this man wants eternal life, 
there can be nothing he loves more than Jesus. And Jesus knows that money is in the way. Materialism had weaved a web around his heart. And he has to go cold turkey here. Jesus tells him if he wants to go to heaven, he has to liquidate and give it all to the poor. Will Jesus tell you to do that? I don't know. He might. What is it in your life that you love more than him? For some folks, the problem's money. But for some, it isn't. For some, it's fame or pride or sports or career or relationship or selfishness or entertainment. Jesus knows what's on the throne of your life, and you can't go to heaven until you replace it with him. Did you hear that? You can't go to heaven until you put him on the throne. This story ends on a tragic note. Verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This rich young ruler was a moral man. He was a generous man. He was a religious man. My, if he had walked into most Calvary chapels, he would have been made an elder. But none of this stuff, none of the stuff that this man possessed was enough to get him to heaven. Until Jesus sits on the throne of your life, nothing else matters. Jesus doesn't save those he cannot rule. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? The love of money and the lust for more and better stuff is a never-ending, all-consuming trap. Beware. Once you've taken the bait, it's difficult to escape. Jesus adds, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A huge camel passing through the eye of a needle was an idiom used in New Testament times. It could really mean one of either two things, one of two things. Think of a huge camel squeezing through the narrow opening of a sewing needle speaks of an impossible situation. Or the eye of the needle might have referred to the smaller door built into a larger city gate. A camel could pass, but only on its knees. You have to drop down on its knees. And that is the point Jesus is making to this man. You enter God's kingdom through surrender, through humbling yourself, through submitting to him as king of your life. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus said to them, looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Salvation for all folks, rich or poor, takes a miracle. It took a miracle for you to get saved. Without the Holy Spirit's intervention, it's hell for us all. Well, then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, Peter was impressed with the sacrifices that he had made. But understand, it is impossible for you or I to sacrifice for Jesus. Why? Because God rewards our sacrifices a hundredfold. He more than makes up for any sacrifice we might make. And a big part of his compensation to us is his body. The church, follow Jesus and get rejected by your family and friends, but he'll provide you a new family. This is what he does. You know, if my house burned down tonight, tomorrow I'd have 100 houses to live in. It'd be returned a hundredfold. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who would come to my rescue. 
See, Jesus is saying that heaven is my eternal blessing, but the church is my blessing on earth. And then verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In God's kingdom, the pecking order gets turned topsy-turvy. The humble move to the front of the line. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And, they fo- and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Heard this before? Yeah. This is the third time Jesus speaks of his destiny. And yet it never registered with his disciples. And the proof is in verse 35. For then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. (laughs) Oh my. Jesus is talking about the cross. And these two guys are worried about their own advancement. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Jesus is about to drink. He's about to down a cup of suffering. A double shot, no less. He's about to be baptized in the waters of pain and rejection. And when he asks if James and John can drink the same cup and endure the same baptism, they're so presumptuous. Notice, they said to him, oh, we are able. They haven't even entertained the idea of Jesus' cross, but now they're able to bear one themselves? Are you kidding me? And so Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. In Acts 12, James will be the first disciple martyred. Later, John will be arrested by the emperor Domitian and boiled in a cauldron of oil. How's that for a baptism? Both brothers will suffer for Jesus' sake, but who ends up sitting in the exalted seats? That's God's choice. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. I imagine so. These brothers were trying to climb the apostolic ladder. And their political maneuvering had ticked off the others. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. For whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. See, worldly leaders, they push people around. It's how many people are under them. Godly leaders serve people. It's how many people they're under. And Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate example. He was God in the flesh. He was the boss. But on earth, he came not to be served but to serve others. It's been said, life is like a game of tennis. The player who serves well seldom loses. Verse 46. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. And the Greek phrase translated cry out was also used to describe the screams of a woman in labor. This was an agonizing cry that comes out of Bartimaeus' mouth. And he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Blind Bartimaeus had no eyesight, but he had tremendous insight. For here he calls Jesus son of David, which was the name for the Messiah. Bartimaeus believed Jesus to be God's promised deliverer, the Savior. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I love this guy. He's blind as a bat, but spiritually he's got 20-20 vision. If anybody can help him, he knows it's Jesus. Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is on the road and he starts screaming. People tell him to shut up, but no amount of peer pressure is going to silence old Bart. When you need Jesus, don't let anybody intimidate you. Don't let anybody come between you and Jesus. You keep screaming his name until he answers. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. And so Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight. I love that. Immediately. There were no surgeries. No laser treatments, no corrective lenses. It was a miracle. And notice what Bartimaeus does after his healing. He followed Jesus on the road. Jericho was 18 miles from Jerusalem, but he followed Jesus. In the next few days, Bartimaeus, his new vision is going to take in history's most monumental events. Imagine, his eyes are going to see Jesus' triumphant entry into the city. Bartimaeus is going to witness firsthand him cleansing the temple. Those once blind eyes are going to see him arrested and tried and crucified. And those eyes are going to see him resurrected three days later. A A week earlier, he was blind. Now, he's going to see it all. Isn't that amazing? You know, everyone who walks with Jesus starts out like Bartimaeus. Jesus brings us from darkness into light. But old Bart, like old Bart, we don't stop there. For Jesus has wonders he still desires to show us. You've seen miracles, but there's more for you to see. He has truths about himself he's yet to reveal to us. That's why we should keep following. The grandest sights are still ahead.